Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared. And here's the discovery. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome, everybody, again. If you're just joining us, we're about to start. We are starting the Cheeky Scientist radio show, uh, the seven parts of the career change that you will go through as a PhD, uh, seven stages, seven stages of career change you'll go through as a PhD. We have on a very special guest, Joseph Liu, who is a career change expert, has an incredible pod podcast that we will be introducing uh, we'll be talking with him right after the show me the data section. And after that, we'll be bringing on Elizabeth Thatcher, who is uh, an MSL director now. I'll get all of her job titles. She's, her, her career trajectory has been phenomenal. Uh, she's had several promotions since getting into the, uh, this particular medical field. So we'll be bringing her on and talking to her about her career track. And then we'll be bringing on uh, a couple of other guests and doing some special uh, special things uh, for our members during the members only portion as well. Uh, so if you can see and hear me, can you say hello in the chat box for those of you that are members and you're watching us in Zoom. If you're watching the live stream, we are gonna get started here. Again, make sure you get that show up bonus. We put the link in the comment section. And if you are interested in learning more about the MSL career track, click that webinar link and join us. Uh, sign up to join us for tomorrow's webinar on what is an MSL? What do they do? How do you get into that career? Uh, you can, it can help you decide whether or not the career track's right for you. And if it is right for you, how to uh, enter and break into that career track. So again, great to see all of you on. Thank you for joining us. And we are going to, I'm going to show you a few things that we have that have recently been published on the Cheeky Scientist site. We have a great article for those of you who have not read it yet, 10 Obstacles Sabotaging Your PhD Job Search and How to Overcome Them. These are really the biggest challenges that you will face uh, in your job search that we've seen after working with thousands and thousands of PhDs. These are the 10 sticking points and how to overcome them. A lot, some of them are technical, right? It could be your resume, your LinkedIn profile, uh, but most of them are mindset challenges, right? Obsessing on your academic niche background instead of thinking in terms of the industry careers you want. Uh, instead of thinking in terms of the nomenclature they use in industry versus academia. We also, as always, every week bring you the best industry transition articles, essentially the best career articles for PhDs from across the internet. We search all these articles out. They're all from independent, independent sources, independent of cheeky scientists, and we collate them for you and divide them up in terms of the best overall networking, CVs, resumes, interviews, transferable skills. So you don't have to go anywhere else to get the best information online about careers and PhDs. If you missed our last radio show, you can go to our blog as well. Click the radio show tab and you can see our interview with Stephen Kotler. He's a New York Times bestseller um, and just gave an incredible interview on how you can raise your mental 
uh, performance as well as your performance in your job search in 2019. And we also talked to Ranjani about her uh, PhD career track too. All right, so we're gonna jump in here with our, our team. I wanna say hello to our team. We'll bring them on um, a little bit later if we can. Uh, right now I'm gonna bring on Jeanette McConnell and we're gonna go through the show me the data section. Hello, Jeanette, how are you? Hey, Isaiah, great. Good to see you on. And uh, if you can all see Jeanette and hear her okay, can you say hello, Jeanette, in the chat box, please? We'll make sure that we have all of the audio and video working. It looks like it's working very well. Again, it's great to see all of our members on here, uh, Abiola and Adabola and Alex and Arif and Bassett and Brian and Charles and Chris and Cindy and Daria and Diego and Deepak and Duke and Anas. If you're a new member, can you type in me in the chat box? Welcome to your first uh, radio show as a member. This is this is what you get access to in terms of the members. We'll, we'll give you the members only section later, but you also, of course, get access to the show through Zoom now. Hello, Ira. Good to see you on. Jeremy, Jessica, Kareen, uh, Mahmoud. Good to see you on. Mario, Nick, uh, Roshan. I wish I had time to say everybody's name, but good to see all <laughs> of you on. Thank you very much for joining us. So thanks for being on, Jeanette. I'm going to open up the data and then we can walk through it. So for, for those of you listening to us by audio, I will explain the, the charts so that you can understand it, uh, at least the best that you can by audio. Uh, for those of you watching, you can watch us on the screen in terms of what figures we are going through. Uh, so this, the first title of the figure, the first figure is number of jobs, labor market experience and earnings growth among Americans at 50, results from a longitudinal survey. Uh, chart one is cumulative number of jobs held from 18 uh, to age 50 by sex and age. Uh, the, the U.S. labor statistics are robust. Uh, the U.K. does a good job. Uh, Australia, Canada, Europe to, to some extent too. Um, some of these are U.S.-centric, but the trends you will see worldwide as well, um, which is important to note. And this first chart is simply showing on the y-axis the number of jobs held. So like how many jobs will you have? How many careers? And then on the x-axis is the age. And then there's two lines, blue and orange for men and women, respectively. And, you know, we have a nice gentle slope going up here, Jeanette. And, and what does this show? What was surprising about this chart to you? Yeah. So, I mean, the unsurprising part is that as you get older, you have more jobs, right? You have more experience. But what was kind of surprising is the number. So, if you look at the chart, it shows that by age, the, the last number on this chart is 48. Um, most like people, the average is above 10 jobs. So right, right around 11 jobs mm. that they will have had by the time they turn 48. Which and, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that you just have to realize that it's, to me, it shows how common it is to sort of move around and to have, to explore different places and different jobs. And that, that, you know, yeah, like you're looking at 33, it's even already like at seven different jobs. Yeah. Which is amazing. So, yeah. yeah, it is. So, it's really incredible to think how many jobs the average person is having. Yeah, and I would say, you know, even going back to, at, at the age of 28, the average is seven to eight. That is amazing for 28. And I remember it was lifetime. I mean, geez, when I was a kid, lifetime, it was like the most was six to seven. But now, yeah, lifetime, it's much higher. And, you know, for those of you that are you know, late twenties, early thirties, forties. I mean, it's, it's a lot probably, or, you know, around 10 is a good average for most of you who are watching. And I think uh, thinking about the fact that you're going to have 10 different careers reframes you, especially as a PhD, because we get into 
grad school, postdoc, whatever, and we're used to spending these four to five year blocks of time as if, you know, they're a one year commitment, like to the rest of the population. But in industry, things are going to move much faster. And they should move faster. You should be getting promotions every year, either at the same company or moving to a different company. And I think that pace is something that it's a different threshold than most of you are used to dealing with. Yeah. And like you said, I'd like to jump on that too, is it changes the way you think about those jobs. So maybe it's the first or second job you get isn't like your dream job, mm. but they are the jobs that are getting you, that you're on that path, right? You're, you're, you're on that trajectory because you know that it's going to take more than one job to get you to that position that you really wanted. That's kind of what makes me think too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it just means that you got to be, take it easy on yourself, right? If you don't get into that perfect job the first time, it's okay. You're going to have a chance to get a promotion there or move to uh, another company. It's, you know, the ball is in your court in a sense, once you're in industry. Yeah. Uh, the, the next chart we're looking at is percent of weeks, not in the labor force from age 18 to 50 uh, by sex and age. And on the y-axis is percent of weeks and on the x-axis is um, age groups. And then we have uh, orange, uh, blue and orange bars for uh, men and women uh, respectively here. And I guess what's surprising here is that if you look at, I guess overall, I don't know, the average for everybody across age groups is maybe 15. 15 weeks, right? Weeks. Uh, over that, I guess, 15% of weeks, thank you, 15% of the weeks over that 30-year key working period are taken off. So why is this important for, for us, Elizabeth, uh, uh, Jeanette? <laughs> yeah, it's because I think this was a great graph. I looked at it and was kind of surprised to see that, like you said, maybe if we take the average of everyone, it's right around 15% of weeks that you're unemployed. Yes. Right. So as a PhD, I remember when I was unemployed, I was like, oh my gosh, I am so horrible. Like, how did this happen? Right. Nobody else is unemployed. I felt very like this. I can't believe this is happening. Right. <laughs> right? And then, but to see this and to show that like, it's really common for people mm. to have these gaps between mm. jobs or to take time off mm. or to, even to be unemployed for whatever reason is a normal part of a career, right? To have right. these little gaps. And you know, as PhDs, we're taught to think in terms of chronological order, and we're taught in th terms of CVs in academia. Like if you have a year where you weren't publishing, or you have a year where you weren't working, and you have a gap on your resume at all, you're never going to get into a top job. And it's easy to focus on that, you know, especially as a PhD, and we analyze that to death, but it doesn't matter. Most people have these gaps. It's completely normal now. It's not the 1950s anymore, okay? Like people will take these gaps all the time in between jobs. They'll take them off because it could be personal reasons, right? Professional reasons, doesn't matter. The key is it's normal. So if you think of 15% of any given year is how many days? 365, 10%, I mean, what do you think of like 40 days? So 40 days out of every year, that's not working 40 days out of every year, right? So I guess that's, how many weeks is that? Five, a little over five weeks. So think of that, over five weeks out of every year. Um, so if you have a gap on your resume, don't obsess over that. It's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. The next chart, it really is, because we just get that a lot for those of you who are just starting in your industry job. Yeah, set. and we see people get hired all the time, like who have huge, they, they think are huge gaps on their resume. They're like, oh, no, no. And then they're like, oh, wait, it didn't matter, actually. So. Especially with your PhD. I mean, we yeah. have so many PhDs who had multiple unemployment stints in between postdocs, and they think their career is over, and then they get hired into these top jobs, making uh, incredible salaries. 
and it's because you, your PhD is valuable, uh, the gaps don't matter. Me, the next, ta uh, this is a table, median years with current employer for employed wage and salary workers by industry selected between, so it's 2014 to 2018. Uh, so over a four year period, and we're looking at columns that show the industry, um, then January, 2014, January, 2016, January, 2018, right? So every two years, and then it goes down from all different types of jobs and fields in the private sector, um, anything from like transportation, information, uh, manufacturing, construction, education work, STEM work, just everything across the board, right? Agriculture, and, and what it's showing is um, the number of years with that people stayed with the current employer. Because sometimes we still think that things work again like the 1950s, you get a job and you stay there for 20, 30 years until you retire. And it just doesn't work like that. Most of the numbers that we're looking at for any of these years, 2014, 2016, 2018, are probably around five, right? Five, some of them 3.6, right? Some are a little bit higher, 5.4, maybe 6.1. But this was really surprising to me in terms of how low the numbers were, Jeanette. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it is kind of, I think a lot of the narratives that we hear about getting jobs and are these like stable 20 year careers at one place. And while that does happen for some people, it's not the majority, right? So we're seeing that the median, which is the most number of people have careers that are around, you know, these 10 year, because the, the amount of time they're spending at one company is about five years, right? Yeah. And um, going down. Yeah, yeah, slightly. I don't so, know if that, if I was a scientist, I don't know if I would call that a significant change, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's definitely not increasing. No, you're and, right. Uh, so it's important to realize that you should be thinking about changing and moving and to know that if, once you've spent this amount of time at a place that it's okay to like, look what's next. Like, what do I do next? And maybe I want to do something new or maybe I just want to move up. I want to be promoted into a new position and I think these numbers just sort of make us realize how quickly and how much we should be thinking about the changes that will happen in our careers. Yeah, and this is something we're going to talk to our, our first guest a lot about is career change and how frequently it can happen and how you can break it apart into stages. I mean, if you look at the averages overall, the average 2018 for the you know, industry, the private sector is 3.8 years. That's it. So that's less than most, most people get their PhD. The average for PhDs is like six to 10 years. I think there's some people in the humanities that really drive that up, but it's certainly five years, six years, right? So far less than the time you're gonna spend getting your PhD just for reference. Um, so you have to get comfortable with career change. Uh, this data, this next data is looking at STEM, STEM occupations, past, present, and future. And I always wanna say when we talk about STEM, it's not just science, technology, engineering, and math. According to the National Science Foundation, it's all life sciences, physical sciences, engineering, social sciences. A lot of people don't think of that. Any, any uh, field where the scientific discipline is used, okay? So everything except for like the, the very classical humanities. Um, and what this chart shows is the employment change and percentage employment change by type of STEM occupation from 2009 to 2015. Um, and we see uh, a, a bar graph chart where the, the bars are going horizontally. And at the top, it's all STEM occupations, computer occupations, then engineers, STEM-related management, all the way down to life scientists, STEM-related post-secondary teachers, which are like professors, and um, STEM-related cells, et cetera. And I think what's surprising here is that, oh, and then I should say on the x-axis is just the number of jobs increasing in that area. And what's amazing uh, about this is that just in that 
what is it? Is it about 10 years, 16 years for, for STEM no, jobs? Six years. Six years. Thank you. So yeah. Only six years, right? For all STEM occupations, we're seeing an increase in 80, 800,000 jobs just in the U.S. And we've talked a lot about this, whether it's mass bio reports, other worldwide reports showing that STEM occupations are increasing dramatically, which is great news um, for all of you. Was there anything that surprised you about this, Jeanette, overall? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not surprised that it's increasing because right, we hear this all the time. We know that the STEM field is growing. It's very clear. Right. Um, but I think it's interesting that they've put computer occupations at the top. So like, to me, we need to dive into what that means, right? right. And look at the, the details in this study to see like computer occupations is a lot of those things that just require computer analysis, yes. data analysis, statistics, those kinds of positions that we also see growing a lot, I think would fall into that category. Yeah, and we've seen- pretty vague, what does computer occupations mean? Right? Exactly, and in the association, we've had people hired by some of the biggest brands, Home Depot, Hilton, in, into these user experience analysis, analyst jobs, business analyst jobs, data scientist jobs. Um, those would be under computer occupations, but as a PhD, you're probably thinking, well, the computer occupations that I'm used to in academia, right, for something to be labeled computer or whatever, is very, very different than what, what it is in industry. So it's, it's really important that you don't lock into, you know, the academic kind of niche titles. Uh, this next chart is a very similar type of horizontal bar graph chart showing projected job openings for all of those STEM occupations that we just talked about over a 10-year period from 2014 to 2024. And it just shows that, you know, further, further detail here about those computer occupations. There, there's a, a Oh, yeah. And the, the other one I wanted to mention, that's right, was the STEM management. Yeah. We see this growth in the STEM-related management positions, which is where, as a PhD, especially like if you're a STEM PhD, that's where you, you should go. find yourself, right? You're, um, you have the skills to take on a management-level position, and it's growing. Yeah. So that's good news. Yeah. yeah, so you should really be going after those senior titles, the management level titles. Start seeing yourself as that. You don't need postdoc experience to get into a senior title. We've talked a lot about that. So wherever you are in your academic career, you can leverage that um, to get into some of these top positions. And then we're just going to show, you know, by state here, we're going to try to find a figure that shows worldwide. Um, but you'd see the same thing if we were looking at different countries, different states in this case. Um, it's just showing the per percentage of employment change for STEM occupations uh, here over a uh, six-year period, 2009 to 2015. And there's just a lot of, a lot of diversity, right? Um, different locations have uh, more STEM jobs. Perhaps there's a cluster there. There's a variety of things. And if you start thinking like an industry professional, you can see why. It might be because there's a cluster in that particular location. It might be because that particular state or country has significant tax breaks for businesses, or it might just because it's a, it's a, a largely populated uh, uh, place. But when you're looking for jobs, you have to start thinking about it in this way and looking at this kind of demographic data. Any yeah, and like thoughts? you said, this is just for the US, but for your own personal job search, these trends are important that you pay attention to. So like we're showing you a snippet of what you could dive into hmm. and it's important to realize for, your, for yourself, like where are the jobs that I want if you're willing to relocate, right? Which jobs are growing the most, right? So you know how to tailor your approaches to different companies. So I think it's just really important to think big picture with that kind of data. Exactly. All right, so thank you very much, Jeanette. That yeah. concludes our show me the data section. Please tell Jeanette thank you in the chat box. 
Um, we're going to switch gears and now we're going to focus on the specific parts of your career change. Okay. This is our, our leadership interview, the leadership component of our radio show. We're going to talk about uh, uh, specifically the seven stages of career change and what you can do right now to enable or activate career change in your life, right? For those of you who are searching for a job, we're going to talk about things like your personal brand. We're going to talk about um, how you make brand career choices. And to do this, we're bringing on a very special guest, uh, Joseph Liu. And so I'm going to open up a short bio here um, for Joseph. This is Joseph's website. Just go to Joseph um, P. Liu, L-I-U, hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, it's relaunch your career. Understand the seven stages of career change. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You can get this free roadmap that he has if you click that button at the top. Really like his webpage here. He has a great TEDx talk, so check that out. And most importantly, definitely subscribe to his podcast. We'll talk more about that later. Um, we'll put the link to his website in the chat box. Um, Joseph, is a career consultant, public speaker, podcast host, and certified coach who is dedicated to helping people pursue meaningful work as the host of Career Relaunch podcast and a seasoned international keynote speaker. He has crossed paths with thousands of professionals during their career turning points, sharing and learning about what it takes to successfully change career direction. So perfect for all of you. He has shared these insights as a contributor writing to Forbes, Fast Company, Glassdoor, and has been featured in The Guardian, Success Magazine, Career Builder, Huffington Post, Monster, The Muse, City AM, and Square Mile. Uh, you can check out Joseph's LinkedIn profile here. Great profile picture. We always talk about utilizing that banner space, making sure the headshot is very clear, well lit. Um, has lots of media in his summary, so we'll come back to some of that. Articles and activity too, but make sure you connect with Joseph. And when you do, send him a note. Great to, great to, uh, to have you on the radio show today, right? Don't just press that connect button. Let's show Joseph how, just how engaged this community is. Make sure you go follow uh, him, download the podcast, and connect with him on LinkedIn. And so without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, Joseph here. Let me make sure we can get his, his audio and video set up. Let me see if I can do this view. And I don't think he has his, uh, Joseph, I don't think you have your video on yet. I can't send you the ask to turn it on, but. I am trying to turn my video on and it's telling me that the host has stopped it. Uh, let's see. Let's see if Lisa or Jeanette can help us. Let me see if I can fix that. Maybe if I make you co-host, let's try that. We'll, we'll find a workaround. Oh, there you there go. go. I was going to say, audio, you have such a great radio voice. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Yeah, hi. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you too. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you heard a little bit of what we were talking about and, and really, you yeah. know, what we're looking for is just your expertise in career change. And I know that you have um, you've really narrowed down career change to these seven key components. And I would love to start just by hearing about those components. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show, Isaiah. And it's really great to hear you talking about this topic of career change. I was listening into some of the interesting stats that you talked about. And I know that one of the things you pointed out was that people are changing careers quite often. Yes. And one of the things that I notice in my own line of work, because I do work with a lot of different career changers, is that they do go through pretty much seven common stages of career change and it's quite predictable and it tends to follow the same pattern across industry across sector across geography and mm -hmm. i'll just 
I'll just high level summarize what they are right now. And if I can, if you want me to go into more detail, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but sure. basically the, the first stage is doubt where you're feeling disengaged and you don't like your job. Second stage is what I call dismay where you don't like your career and you're pretty convinced that you're not that happy with your job and where your job is going. Mm. Third is mitigation where you feel like, okay, maybe I'll stick it out. Maybe I can fix this. The fourth is exhaustion, where you're trying to mitigate it and you're trying to fix it, but it's just physically and emotionally tiring and you're wondering how much longer can you go on like this. The fifth is departure, where you decide that you, you really just can't do this anymore. And sometimes that means leaving your job behind or leaving your past industry behind. Mm. Uh, the, the sixth is reflection, where you need a bit of a break and you reflect on what you want to do next. And the seventh is the decision to relaunch your career and to start a new chapter in your career, similar to what you were talking about, maybe shifting out of a PhD to go into industry or some other career change that involves a pretty major shift from what you were doing. Mm. And those yeah. are the seven stages. Yeah. No, I love that. I'm just curious. So how many of you uh, have experienced at least uh, half of those stages? <laughs> For those of you that are on live, I'm guessing most of you. I mean, how many of you Specifically, I, I guess what jumped out at me was when he said the exhaustion stage. I think a lot of us as PhDs were so stubborn that we stayed in that exhaustion stage for, I don't know, two years, right? Longer. And uh, so I guess maybe I'll just jump in and say, what do you see that really makes people shift gears from that exhaustion stage to that critical deciding to leave stage? Is it just pain? Well, Isaiah, that's part of it. I think that, uh, first of all, like, so just to be clear, I did not do a PhD. Sure. I know plenty of people who have done a PhD. My, my, actually, my wife has done a PhD and she's involved in academics right now. Wow. So she decided to stay down that path. And one of the things I saw with her with a PhD is that I know it's really challenging and really intensive. And sometimes um, you're so deep into something and you've invested so much time into it, especially as you mentioned with a PhD, you're investing years into that. Mm. that the inertia of that is really hard to walk away from. So, so I've found that people don't tend to move on until they reach what I would call kind of a breaking point where mm. you feel like you're completely drained. You feel like you're spending your days pretending to be someone you're not. You don't feel like you're developing as a person or professional. Mm. And also you're just in a bad mood all the time, not only at work, but other people in your life will start to notice that. So I know, in my own life, the moments where I've realized, gosh, I need to make a change is when it's actually started to trickle out into the rest of my life. Mm. And people have started to tell me, hey, you don't look very happy. Um, you're not that fun to be around right now. So, so I, think that, I think that that's when it really happens, um, when mm. it turns from what has started off to be an ache to something that's completely debilitating. Well said. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard it said um, that moderate pain is your worst enemy because you won't change. It's got to be severe. And then you, yeah. and you make that decision. So, you know, to focus on, I guess, the, the, the last three stages there. So you make a decision to leave. How do you get yourself to that seventh stage of I am ready to make a career change? How do you empower that in yourself or with other people, other tools, other support? Well, so I'll just start off by saying, Isaiah, that there's not one magic bullet that I've found works well for people. And at the same time, I have noticed similar patterns amongst people who have managed to successfully enable change in their careers. And I'll just mention three that come to mind, um, moving you from that stage of being stuck to that stage where you're really determined to relaunch your career. Mm. And the first 
This one, I think, is just giving yourself permission to test the waters with something on the side. Mm. I think for whatever reason, either being too busy or just not feeling like you should be diluting your time and, and kind of experimenting with something on the side, people don't tend to want to do that. But I've seen time and time again, uh, just to give you an example from the podcast that I host, a woman named Vicki Dane, who's based in London. She was a corporate lawyer. She uh, ended up becoming a clinical psychologist and she yes. spent some time just, uh, she literally worked on a farm. She learned to bake. She <sighs> spent some time fishing. She just, she just kind of explored. Huh. And so, and that really helped her gain some clarity to decide what to do next. Um, another thing that you can do is to try to surround yourself with the people doing what you want to do. So if, if people are shifting away from wanting to, to uh, go into academics, to working in the industry, uh, one of the, I think, natural inclinations is to stick with the tribe you feel most comfortable with. And what I would say is if you want to enable career change, you almost have to force yourself to go spend some time with people in the industry or with people mm. who are in those jobs or who have made the transition successfully into the career that you want to get into. Mm. And um, another example from podcast, a woman named Rena Aini who was a professional tennis player and she ended up wanting to work in finance. And so she went to the London school of economics, got her degree there. So surrounding herself with other people interested in that. And then she went to wall street to surround herself with other bankers who were passionate about finance. So that that's another thing you can do. And then the final thing I'll mention is just to make sure you recraft and rehearse your personal brand pitch, which I know you were talking about before, just trying to get really clear on, um, not necessarily sticking with the vernacular that's used in your current industry, but trying to use the vernacular of your target industry. Yeah. And, and let me recap that. Cause that was all pure gold. Um, the, and I think for a lot of you listening, you might understand just how valuable those steps are. And there's, there's steps almost, well, one was literally the step that I went through when I was trying to figure out where to go next. I mean, I had a very, uh, a deep state of really just depression and anxiety and stress. And one of the, th things that helped me get out of it is I worked on a farm my last year of graduate school. It's so funny that you oh, say that. I was in Iowa. Funny, so yeah. Plenty <laughs> of farms. And it just, it just, you know, giving yourself space to do something different or less, you know, especially if you can get outside of the you know, lab or wherever you're used to being, it can really open up your, your mind. Cause right now you're mm -hmm. just, you're so pigeonholed. You're in a fishbowl, right. Of what everybody else is doing. And then the second thing was going and meeting other types of people going to, you know, whatever, uh, you know, I went to like different entrepreneurship or business investing architecture meetups and groups, and it just helped me see what else was out there. So I just wanted to say, Joseph's right on here. And I really want to encourage you to do that. And then, you know, the last part is once you start zeroing in on what you want or what you want to get into, even if it's just industry in general, start thinking in terms of that nomenclature and that personal, you know, your, how your personal brand would change your professional brand and how you'd make that pitch. So maybe we could just stay on that. I know you've had some great podcasts on this too. Mm -hmm. Can you just define that personal or professional brand? And then how do you craft it in an authentic way for the field you want to get into? Yeah. So I think when I think about the concept of personal branding, there's a lot of different definitions that float around out there, but in a nutshell, a personal brand is who you are and what you stand for in your career and your life. Mm. And so the benefit of having a strong and clear personal brand is first of all, being clear about what you're all about, but then also being able to communicate it in a way that allows you to stand out and differentiate yourself from others in your industry. And so I generally think about four parts to your personal brand. 
Uh, number one, your identity, which is who you are. Number two is your skills. So what you do well, mm. uh, or in this case, if you're talking about PhDs, maybe the technical area of focus that you've, that you've had over the past few years or the area of research that you've honed in on. Yes. The, the third one is a uh, way to kind of differentiate yourself is to think about your approach. So taking your skills and thinking about how do you actually do your work? What sort of impact do you have on other people who work with you? Mm. And then the final one, which is maybe a little bit heavy for uh, a Wednesday uh, afternoon is, is to kind of think about your desired impact or your mission, mm. the kind of legacy that you want to have in your career. And so, so when you think about your identity, skills, approach, and mission, to me, that's a really good way to just start constructing the components of your personal brand. And Fantastic. Uh, yeah. No, no, I love that. And something we talk a lot about in the group is, you know, a specific type of elevator pitch that falls along the lines of what Joseph just said, right? Who are you? What do you want? And then why should other people care? So I really like that. Even though it's a yeah. Wednesday, we talked about that impact part because it's important. Why, what do you, what's the impact you want to have? A lot of you thought you'd have, I think, and this would be interesting to ask you, Joseph, that a lot of us thought we were going to have a very different impact in a career that is now draining us. And that's the reason that it's draining us because we're not fulfilling a purpose or something that's aligned with, you know, what we thought we'd be doing on the scale of a mission rather than day to day. Do you see that a lot? Yeah, definitely. And I think that what happens is that people evolve. Mm. You, you change in your life and your perspectives change, your priorities change, what matters to you changes. And sometimes we kind of forget how much we are evolving and developing as individuals and professionals. And so we get a little bit stuck in our former identity of what we thought our life should have looked like. And I think one of the first steps is just recognizing that your career does split into different chapters. Mm. And uh, I like to use the word chapters because I really do think that it's, it's a choice to decide to close a chapter down and to begin a new one. And, and different chapters have different titles. They represent different parts of your career and your identity. And one chapter may not look like the former chapter and, and often doesn't. Mm. I, I've got a guy on our show tomorrow who used to be a former prison guard. And so he wow. spent his time working in prisons, literally prisons. And wow. so you talk about like the metaphorical context of, of being in a, kind of like a jail or a prison in a job you don't like. He was literally in a prison working as a prison guard. And, and he ended up deciding to become a strength coach. So he's actually a fitness coach now in Cancun, Mexico. And um, one of the things that he talked about was just realizing that his perspective had changed and he no longer wanted to, to work in a prison. It just wasn't what he was about. And it, it wasn't something that he necessarily agreed with anymore. So he mm. had to move on from that. Yeah, I think this evolution process is so important because it's very easy, especially if you're a driven person and um, yeah. you, know, you want to get to that next level yesterday, right? Yeah. Um, you think you're losing ground by taking any space whatsoever. You think evolving is something you don't have time for. <laughs> so I guess how can you be gentle with yourself to allow yourself to evolve while at the same time not getting caught in, I guess, you know, maybe more of a depressive state or not doing anything. What do you see works with people? How do you walk that line between giving yourself space, but making sure you're, you're moving ahead and, and evaluating whether or not you're moving ahead in the right direction? Yeah, well, I totally get this concept of goals being both useful, but also kind of limiting in some ways. Like I've spent parts of my career working toward a particular goal that 
I eventually actually kind of knew was the wrong goal to be working toward, but it was really hard to let go of it because it kind of feels like you're failing when you don't achieve your goals. And I think the first step is to realize that your narrative behind walking away from a goal is actually a choice. So you could choose the narrative to be, Hey, I didn't finish what I started. That's failure. You could also choose to have your narrative be, Hey, I've, I've decided that I want to go after something else. And this is actually, uh, this is actually a real real opportunity for me to do something different. So, so that's Mm -hmm. the first thing. And then I think, I think the other really important component, which is, again, something I have struggled with personally myself, and I see a lot of my clients and, and people I've interviewed on my podcast struggle with, is trying to just focus on how you feel and what you think about your career, not get too caught up with what other people think or yes. like the judgments of others or the funny looks you get from, I don't know, other people who are finishing their PhD and have decided to stay in academics Yes. Like those people, they're not going to really get uh, what you're trying to do if it's Mm. not following that common, more traditional beaten path. I love that. And it kind of ties into the last question I want to ask you here. And I really appreciate your time. This is great is, you know, you have a podcast on, on, uh, I guess, being brave in your career. And that might sound like an intense word or maybe even a melodramatic word, but really for those of you that have started to take steps into this the uncertainty of another career field. There's a lot of fear and anxiety that comes up, a lot of uh, sense of rejection, this kind of stuff. So what can you do to lighten things up, to be, you know, to, to step into that and, and to be able to handle the hits that you're going to have by going at the top or close to the top of one mountain and starting at the bottom now of another mountain? Yeah, so a couple things come to mind when you ask that question. So this is really tough. Isaiah, I think this, there is a chasm between deciding to leave something behind and the new path working out. I know that, I think one of the big myths with career change is that there's, there's this immediate moment of elation or like everybody's going to celebrate this huge success because you've made this brave choice. And I, I've actually found that that's not what happens. I think mm-hmm. making a big career change can be a very lonely journey where you are constantly tempted to revert back to what you were doing before. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the first things that uh, is really important to remember is to just be patient with your career change and just realize that for most people, it does take a couple steps. I had a person on my podcast, podcast named Ann Tumlinson, who used to work in consulting. She was a senior vice president at a consulting firm, left that behind and decided to become an independent consultant and also found her own community focused on helping women take care of their aging parents. And, and mm. one of the things she talks about is that this whole concept of an overnight success, it just doesn't happen that often. Mm. And so part of it is just about having the courage to hang in there before you actually cross those milestones that you would hope to cross. And it, it's about commitment and consistency. Um, there's, a, there's a guy named Jim Collins who, Collins, who you might be familiar with, a great business leader. He wrote a book called Great By Choice, and he talks about the 20-mile march and, mm. and defining your 20-mile march and knowing that you're going to have some bad days and you're going to have some good days, but on, on every single day, you commit to a certain cadence, and the boundaries are, are the ambition to achieve and also the self-control to hold back. So not overextend yourself, but also make sure you're constantly pushing forward. So I think having that cadence is really important because um, it, it's a lot of hard work 
And uh, I guess the second thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about making a brave career choice is just to remember that this is really difficult and that if making a career change was easy, then everybody would be doing it. And, mm. and so it's really important to not only remember it's tough, but also to be an advocate for yourself and, and to remember that you need to kind of be your own number one fan, as, as someone uh, has told me. Those aren't my words. It's a woman named Sandeep Johal, who used to be a teacher and now has turned into an artist in Vancouver. And she said, you got to be your own number one fan, because yeah. if, if you don't believe in what you're selling, if you don't believe in your story, you're going to have a very difficult time selling that to somebody else. So um, it is worth investing the time to get clear on what your story is so you can make that brave choice and make that brave move. Well said. Thank you very much, Joseph, for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Excellent. Thanks for having me. And uh, yes, thank you for showing me what a real radio voice should sound like. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show, Isaiah. Yeah, thank you. Please tell uh, Joseph, thank you in the chat box if you haven't yet. And make sure you go over to his LinkedIn page and connect with him there. And I'm going to show his uh, website one more time as well. Um, I should have it saved now. I can spell. Oh, there we go. Close. <laughs> there we go. So go over to uh, josephplu.com. Uh, get his the free roadmap up here. This is a, a great uh, a free uh, gift that you can get for, for watching the radio show here and you can download it. It'll give you some insights on that step, the seven parts of your career change and, and where you are. Um, make sure you check out his Ted talk and most importantly, go to his podcast, subscribe to his podcast, listen to a couple of episodes, give him uh, give him all of the stars there on iTunes. Um, and again, uh, make sure you say thanks in the chat box. Thanks again, Joseph. Great to see you. Thanks so much, Isaiah. Take care. Take care. Are you looking to get your first or next job in industry? You can go to CheekyRadioBonus.com right now and get our free bonus that's for this podcast episode specifically. You have to go to CheekyRadioBonus.com right now to get this bonus because after this week, the bonus expires. Every week, we have a brand new bonus. So if you want this week's bonus, go to CheekyRadioBonus.com and we will send you a free bonus that will help you in your job search and help you thrive in business now. Okay, so fantastic. How'd you guys enjoy that? Uh, I think the, the way that Joseph breaks down that, um, the, the, the parts of the career change is fantastic. So it was really great to have him on and to hear about all of the different types of careers that people can get into and how different they can be from what they were doing before, right? Should give you some comfort. You might think that you're taking on something that nobody's ever taken on before, right? You're going from academia to industry. This is this huge thing. Yeah, it's a big deal, but you can do it. Others have done it. Uh, it doesn't matter what field you want to get into, what career you want to get into. It doesn't matter what your background is. You can connect the two through your own path, your own 20-mile march, uh, as Joseph referenced. So, again, very, very lucky to have Joseph on, and I hope you will reach out to him on, on LinkedIn as well. Okay, so we have J Elizabeth Thatcher, who's going to come on next. I'm going to introduce Elizabeth. Um, I want to give you a reminder that we have the a free webinar tomorrow that Elizabeth will be on. Uh, discussing what an MSL is, a medical science liaison, uh, what that career track entails and how to get into it. Uh, Elizabeth did her undergraduate training in biomedical 
Engineering at Mercer University and got her PhD in molecular biology at Vanderbilt. Uh, she, she then worked as a research fellow at the University of Massachusetts Medical School uh, with her pick of three concurrent job offers. She transitioned into her first industry role as a medical science liaison, where she was then promoted to medical director at Pyramal Life Sciences, Pyramal, that's right, I think. Uh, she recently accepted a new role as field medical director at Pfizer. Uh, she is also the program leader for the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. We will put her LinkedIn profile here for you so you can connect with Elizabeth if you haven't already. I think she's traveled to every city in the world and has had a cheeky meetup there. She uh, by far has, had, uh, has attended more cheeky meetups and, and uh, set up more cheeky meetups than anybody yet. So if you're a member watching us, you're likely to meet her in person. And I'm very excited to have um, Elizabeth on with us now. So I'm going to make sure we can get her on and by video. And please do me a favor and welcome Elizabeth in the chat box. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Isaiah. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Where are you at today? I'm home today. I leave tomorrow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, be here. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great to see you. Um, it's been a while since you're on the last radio show, a few months, huh? Yeah, but I will be in Orlando for a meetup tomorrow, so. I knew it. I remember I saw one recently. <laughs> I wish it was a little later. We're going to the, uh, the National Postdoc Association Conference in Orlando, but one, one oh, day, cool. one day I'll see you again. I know you're at the summit, second year, the summit, right? First Third and year. second. Second, first and second, that's right. So your career has really taken off since you transitioned. I guess I just wanted to start from like a high level overview of what the transition process looked like, what these titles mean, right? We we're talking about medical science liaison, but it's in like the medical affairs field kind of, but it's a specific role and now you have a director role. Can you help us understand, I guess, the framework of what these diff different roles are and how they fit together? So medical affairs is really like a departmental title name. And under medical affairs, there are many different uh, areas where you could be employed and it really depends on the company as to how they break it out but field medical team is one of the areas under medical affairs a lot of times regulatory affairs is also under uh, medical affairs yes. and medical information which includes like medical writing is also under medical affairs usually so it can be very all in, an all-encompassing phrase when you say medical affairs now if you're in a tiny company then they don't have all of those different branches anyways so it doesn't seem as big, but in mm. a big company like Pfizer, they have all of those branches plus stuff. So really it's, so obviously there must be a component of regulation in this department, right? Medical affairs, regulatory affairs, medical science liaison, you have even medical writing. Um, what would you say is at the essence of the medical science liaison career path? If you had to define that in like a sentence or two, what is the main job of an MSL? So it's hard to say because there are actually many jobs of an MSL, but the distinction that MSLs have in the medical affairs department is, is that they are the face to the customer or the healthcare provider, the KOL, which we call key opinion leader in the mm. field. So they are the, they are the face and the one-stop shop for any interaction with the company. If anybody has any questions, in my field for Pfizer, they would come through me mm. to get to Pfizer. And I am a master administrator, essentially, in discussing initial scientific insights with these 
uh, KOLs as well as managing expectations for things that they possibly want to get back from Pfizer mm. because that's a huge part of the job. You don't want to break up a relationship because you gave them unrealistic expectations. And that's what the word, you know, liaison means, right? You're a liaison between these two components. And I think everybody can put, wrap their heads around the one side of the equation, like you're the liaison for the MD in the field, for example, or the key opinion leader, thought leader, et cetera. Um, on the other end, though, it's Pfizer. But who actually is on the other end? Is it sales? Is it medical affairs? Is it uh, who, who, who do you talk to? Who would you communicate a concern with or feedback from, from the field to? So I have very little interaction with sales uh, because it's not compliance. I can't be seen as uh, biased in promoting the sale of a product. I'm supposed to give completely objective responses to questions asked, and that means that I have to give them the good news and the bad news. And every mm -hmm. time I talk about a product, I have to remind them, oh, that product has a box label. Be aware of X, Y, Z. You know, I have to be completely objective about my interactions with these physicians about it. But when I go back to Pfizer, it really depends on the question that's asked. If it's a clinical trial uh, question, then I would go to the clinical, the compound lead, which I am now comp got promoted to compound lead at the beginning of the year for one of the Pfizer's recent launches. So people come to me with any questions about this compound and clinical trials and medical strategy that they get from the field. And then I take it internally to our clinical trials team and discuss how we can interact with these people uh, what we want our global message to be when we get this question in the field. Yes. And that way we can stay consistent with our medical strategy as well as the, the way we interact with everybody. And, and how has your role changed as you've progressed into these higher level positions, the more of the director, manager, lead positions versus uh, the MSL? What, what are some of the, the changes that have happened? So it obviously depends on the company, but um, you know, an entry-level MSL position is called usually an MSL. And then you have senior MSLs, or some people call them executive MSLs. Then you have medical directors above them, and then senior direct medical directors. You know, it goes like that. And basically, you are take, just taking on more responsibility for medical strategy behind the scenes. Mm. And that medical strategy can be encompass many things. It could encompass clinical trial design. It can encompass... Um, publication strategy it can encompass you know advisory board focuses and how the company decides to spend their millions of dollars on future clinical trials that you know might have holes and you're hearing in the field that people have concerns about x y or z about your product but if you haven't done a clinical trial you can never answer mm. that concern without real world data so you I help see. them figure out what is important for the field in order to communicate the correct science. Excellent. So and more responsibility as you go up. That makes sense. And then let's, let's say, let's rewind now to getting into that real first MSL role and what that looked like on a day to day. And we'll rewind from there to talk about like your transition, but I'm just curious day to day or, or maybe even week to week basis. What are you spending most of your time doing? everything from travel to follow-up to presenting, if you can give people kind of a, a clearer picture. Do you mean currently or when I first started? When you first started, yeah. When you're like people who traditionally will get into their first MSL role, what uh -huh. are they doing? So at the beginning, it's all just education and learning. You need to be the scientific expert 
hmm. when you go into that person's office. So you need to know every little trial they did, every protocol design that's been done on your products, what the major competitors are and what their trial designs are and, and what, whatnot. So the first few months, it's just intense amount of studying and reviewing material and making sure that you are the expert before you walk into that room. And then after the first few months, there's a lot of administrative tasks that people don't think about. You know, you have to make your own meetings. You have to schedule your own flights and uh, whatnot. And that can take a lot of legwork, whether that, that can involve a lot of emailing as well as phone calls. Sometimes, depending on your therapeutic area or your territory, they may or may not be responsive to phone calls or emails. So you might actually have to show up, which is what we term a cold call. Mm. Many people are not comfortable with cold calls. So if you are an early pre-launch company or in a smaller company and you are comfortable with cold calls, that puts you a step ahead of a lot of people in the MSL world that are looking for that job because most yeah. people don't, they want to know somebody's going to say, okay, come right in when they walk in that door. But, uh, you know, a cold call, you're usually getting to know the administrative staff. You're not talking mm. to the doctor. You're just finding out, okay, who's in charge of the doctor's schedule Mm. And let me make sure I make a good impression with them. You know, it's mm. not just the HCP you're building relationships with, but you're also building relationships with all of their staff members. I love that. And if you're wondering what that exactly means, think of the person who's selling antibodies that just shows up at your lab. Okay. That's a cold call, right? They're nice to you because you're like the front facing kind of uh, person of the lab and they know that maybe you can help make them uh, more, uh, the, your PI more available, just as an example. Um, and I, I think what, has surprised me is the the PhDs that are getting hired in MSL positions, especially those in the MSLA program. Uh, to you know, to be honest, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, okay, this person's not extroverted enough. This person's background, they're not, they don't have a background in that pathway, or this person is not a good communicator yet. This per we've already had some questions here, right? I'm not a life scientist. I don't have clinical background. Maybe you can just dispel all of these objections that people have typically about, I can't be an MSL because of X, Y, Z, even with your own experience, you know, whether it's lack of clinical trials, uh, knowledge or experience, lack of clinical experience, lack of whatever. I had zero clinical experience before I got my first offer, my first job, and I had three offers in the same week. So it's absolutely not necessary. I also come from an engineering background. <laughs> And then I went into the life sciences. I was unemployed for a year before I got my three offers. I feel like everything that people in the CSA are so concerned about that are going to prevent them from getting a job, it doesn't really, it's all in your mind. It's not in their mind. And you're putting it on them when you focus on those things. You just have to focus on what you can offer. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the advantages is, you know, there are definitely some people that join the MSLA that you know, they give um, a video or I talk to them and I'm like, oh, they're so soft-spoken. They're not going to be seen as confident, you know, and then it's amazing how once they get engaged and they commit, because usually when they're at the soft-spoken, non-confident stage, it's because they haven't completely committed to becoming an MSL. Mm. And you can see a sort of switch that's turned on in them when they do finally commit mm. and they become much more outspoken and much more confident and they sound like an MSL before they're an MSL. And that's what employers are looking for. They're looking for someone that can market themselves as a confident person that can represent the company. They don't want to hire somebody that's going to go talk to an HCP and you don't seem like you know what you're talking about because you yes. destroy not just their trust in you, but you destroy their trust in the company that you're representing. And they don't want that. So 
there's definitely a little bit of work that people have to put in if they do decide they want to be an MSL in order to portray that. But most of it is an internal mind game that they're that they're playing and they have mm -hmm. to get over that themselves. I mean, in the MSLA, we do a lot to try to promote that by encouraging videos and, you know, I'm happy to be a mentor and a cheerleader, but that's, you know, I don't really do anything dramatic. I just support them as they're going through each stage of their process to transition to an MSL role. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, really, we, you know, commitment is what matters and no matter what you've been in the past or what skills you've learned, et cetera, you can flip that switch. And really what it comes down to is your biggest transferable skill as a PhD, your ability to learn, not just new technical skills, but soft skills, communication skills. You can learn this. You've been through tougher things. And uh, the, the turnaround that I, that has happened in, in the MSLA over and over again has been amazing. Um, last question I want to ask you going back to the very beginning, why an MSL position? Why was that the position that you wanted to transition into? How did it get on your radar? What were your first steps? So I actually, at the end of my second postdoc, I knew I didn't want to be, well, at the beginning of my second postdoc, I knew I didn't want to go into academic science, but I started asking people what they thought my best skills were in the lab, trying to get a more objective view of what other people, how other people viewed me, because obviously I thought I had a certain skill set may or may not be perceived that way. And almost everybody said that I was a good communicator, that I was a good teacher, that I was I'm good at troubleshooting problems and that I was a problem solver. And I can't tell you how many times I hear from all of the bosses that I've had that the fact that I am solution focused and a problem solver mm. takes a huge load off of their shoulders. Mm. And I can, I was able to market that as a great selling point in order to get these jobs. It took me a little to get these job offers. It took me a little while to figure out how best to market it, but that's part of the process. And, um, I honestly, I just Googled those soft skills and PhD. Mm. And so like careers came up because I didn't want to just forget my PhD either. I wanted something that required a PhD and I wanted to utilize the soft skills that everybody mentioned that I was really good at. And uh, medical science liaison was, was one of them. And then I started doing a bunch of informational interviews to find out exactly what an MSL is. And it's kind of funny because Everybody says an MSL is an educator, but if you answer that question from the interviewer that way, it's usually a wrong answer. Mm. And not because it's not true, but just because it shows that you're still naive about the position because there's so much more to an MSL job than just educating and communicating with physicians. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I mean, for those of you listening, please thank Elizabeth. You are uh, listening and learning from uh, an expert in the field and her trajectory and uh, just frequent promotions has really shown it. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing that Elizabeth brings to the table is uh, the program leader for MSLA and, and just as a professional is that she cares uh, and she's given back so much. So Elizabeth, thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate you sharing your uh, story with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right. So please again, thank Elizabeth in the chat box, if you would. And what I'm going to show here one more time also is her, her LinkedIn page. Make sure you go and connect with Elizabeth at her LinkedIn page. Go say hi to her for those of you who are uh, members in the association's private group. And for those of you watching, if you're wondering what the Medical Science Liaison Alliance program is, this is one of our advanced programs. If you want to learn more about it, you can get on the wait list where we'll send you information about this career, tr uh, this career track program. It's for 
just for people interested in MSLs. It has an MSL specific network. Uh, so you can go to cheekyscientist.com slash MSL dash learn dash more. And this takes us to the end of our live stream. So thank you for joining us on the live stream. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to all of you watching us, whether you're watching us on uh, Facebook or YouTube, please join us for our next radio show. If you want to learn more about getting hired in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com, phdsgethired.com. Thank you. And we'll see you on another radio show soon. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pop, pop, the